0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to this, our very first episode of the Pop Theory Podcast, a podcast to analyze, or some would say overanalyze, everything we can get our hands on. A podcast for all of us who want to feel like we're doing some serious academic research while binging TV shows and mindlessly scrolling through Twitter. And what a better time to start a show about wasting our lives on the internet than during the great quarantine of 2020. We all have spent about Well, really, I don't know how long it's been anymore. Time is no longer a concept in this situation, but we're all looking at pictures on Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, whatever. I think this entire generation has just given up on reading and communicates through emojis and Zoom now. Speaking of which, before you send us any complaints about how terrible the audio is, just bear in mind that we're recording this through a Zoom call. No shade to Zoom, we love Zooms. Please sponsor us Zoom. But you know, it's not quite studio quality yet. But hold on, Michelle, I hear you say. We've only heard you. Why do you need a Zoom call to talk alone? Ah, well. Let me introduce you to the two research scholars who have gracefully agreed to participate in this podcast and have been so nice and quiet so far. First, you probably expected her to be here. You may have seen her in an 80s-themed video about making podcasts going around social media. You will probably see her at some point accepting an Oscar for her amazing acting skills. It's the co-president of the podcasting initiative, Samhita Bharadwaj. This is, this, this is where you say hi. <laughs> hi.
1: <laughs> that was such a wonderful introduction. Hello, um, I am Samhita. Thank you for inviting me and I look forward for this Pop Theory podcast. And yes, I'm a, second, I'm a first year master's candidate in international affairs. Specializing in environment is my major and my minor is in global health. Um, But I'm all yours for today's topic on images and the wonderful uh, topics and series we'll be discussing today. So look
0: forward. Great. And also on the Zoom call, we have Paras Arora, who is a second year master's candidate and Hans Wilder scholar at the Department of Anthropology and Sociology. His research focuses on questions of visual culture, gender and politics, particularly in Delhi, India. And this is not any old research. He's presented it at the University of Cambridge, Amsterdam, Istanbul, Singapore, and Delhi. So basically, he's been all around the world talking about images, and we're lucky enough to have him on our podcasts. Would you like to add anything to this bright, bright curriculum for
2: Well, that was extremely generous of you, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You know, there's no point of pretending that we don't know each other. We are together in one of the classes that has been offered by Professor Patricia Spire, who is the queen of images at the (laughs) Institute. Um, The course is called Image and Violence and Michelle and I are in the class together and Michelle came up with the wonderful idea of actually hosting a podcast on the importance of images. Images. And I I mean, I, I couldn't resist saying, you know, yes. So I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I mean, it, it's really weird to cold email somebody who is in a class with you, but you've only sort of seen through a screen, really. Yeah. I don't remember how life works anymore. Of course. Okay, so well, how fitting that we have a person that conducted all this serious research about images to talk about some crappy Photoshops online. (laughs) See, the thing about the internet is that nowadays we're not sure what's real anymore, right? Like with Photoshop and Facetune and whatnot, I mean, talk about all these beauty ideals. But it's also the idea that everything is sort of malleable, right? I mean, I'm definitely guilty of using the hashtag no filter on a photo (laughs) with like all the filters. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, completely agree with that. yes <laughs> rises from the audience. Um, but really, that's sort of been going on forever, right? There's been like reimagining of images according to context, not really according to what's accurate. Think of the white marble Greek statues. I mean, listeners probably know they were originally painted. So this pure white marble is kind of a fallacy. Yeah. And today we'll be talking about statues at some point. But first, I'd like to get get you guys' perspective on this. So, like, how do you feel about photoshopped or images or repurposed images, whatever you want to talk about?
2: Um, If I may chip in, um, you know, when we were actually talking about this initially, one of the things that Michelle actually asked at that point of time, and I think it's also important here, is that... uh, You know, It's interesting to look at how we treat images in our day-to-day language as well. Uh, We often talk about photoshopped images, modified images. And that basically implies that it is always us, the humans, who are acting on images. But as a a visual anthropologist in the making and somebody who has worked with images for some time now, I've come to realize it the hard way that actually it's images who are often acting on us. And I would like to introduce a bit of the concepts here that might be helpful. Um, You know, one of the things that we have often seen in our curriculum or generally is that um, human beings produce images, they consume them, and that's the end of it. But if you actually think about the laws around images, around copyrights, around you know debates around images, you feel like we are deeply anxious about them, precisely because we can't control them. Some thinkers, like W. J. T. Mitchell, uh, argues that they're actually like pseudo humans. They're kind of like humans, and they also desire things, images. And uh, I feel like that's an interesting insight for all of us to kind of borrow and think of within our lives, because then what actually happens is that we kind of de- center humans in our intellectual projects we start looking at the world with new eyes whereby objects can also control us well you know our phones for example or just images or icons for example that of Frida Kahlo or you know these greek statues that have become almost like humans and I mean, we're speaking on behalf of them, but the thing is that we can't control them th- through our tweets and th- uh, through our Instagrams. They will get a life of their own, like Epic, which became uh, from a sad, uh, you know, depressed kind of, um, Meme to uh, a right-wing Nazi meme, right? So, uh, there's a way in which we must acknowledge that images and objects actually have a life of their own, and I think that can help us to study them uh, with, with with new eyes. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And if I would like to have a question now to Paris, uh, you spoke about objects and images, but how would you define what is an image? Or what is an image? And- what is not an image, and um I understand that this is uh definitely touching up some in turn some certain terminologies and concepts, and academically, this is also quite uh important to understand, so I would love to understand a little bit more of the academic concepts that revolve and that surround what images are and uh, love to hear that as well. But this is one question that's, for starters, that I have.
2: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for that question. I mean, this is one question that has really, uh, you know, uh, made a lot of scholars really bang their heads on the wall. They really do not know what exactly is an image. And I think that that kind of speaks of the way we think. We think that images are like words or concepts that you can simply, you know, um, Explain, And um, in reality, you know, one of the ways in which some scholars have argued about what an image is, image could be anything. It could be in your mind. It could be, uh, you know, anything which is related to imagination. And a picture is something which is more material, right? Which which is like a photograph or like, you know, a T-shirt with Frida Kahlo's image on it. But then you realize that this kind of definition kind of ignores, uh, for example the kind of images that come in your head when you listen to music or the kind of images that come to your head when you touch something, right? So um, it's difficult to answer that question. But I think what's important for us to remember is that whatever cultural context that we are talking about, and this is one thing that anthropologists love to talk about, whenever we talk about any particular kind of cultural context, it's interesting and it's very important for us to understand what is an image for those people what is an image what is the culture of seeing and not seeing what is it that is considered to be you know the the you know something that's different from words and in several cases they could very well be with them so i think one needs to really be attentive to what a culture understands uh, an image to be and not impose our own definitions of what it is um yeah
0: yeah, I think that's true. And we'll definitely talk about, you know, cultural images and how they change meaning. And I was particularly interested with your idea of the difference between an image and a picture, because we will have one real sort of picture there in, in this podcast, but the rest is definitely images and exist more as a concept, as a general concept on the internet or, you know, on t-shirts, as you were mentioning, yeah. um, than on... on a particular image that we can all see and agree upon. Uh, So, okay, let's get into talking about the images themselves, right? So today we'll be discussing three main pictures or general images, as Paris was mentioning, and obviously mentioning a bunch more in the process. So I can already hear you laughing, haha, talking about pictures over audio. That's hilarious. What a great medium you've picked, Michelle. But really, I think it's also an opportunity to discuss things before you see them, And if you really want to go back and look at them, you can find them linked in the episode notes. So let's start our discussion with the Muses or the Graces, which I only know about from the Hercules movie, the Disney Hercules movie. So the first image we'll be talking about is one that is really just one picture. Maybe some of you have come across it. A few months ago, there was this post going around on Reddit, which linked to a photo of a statue of the three Graces at the Louvre. Now, what is so special about it is that it had been photoshopped. The statue itself is a really banal representation of the three muses from the Greek mythology. I'm going to say three out of a possible five, but again, that's only based on knowledge from Disney movies.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for for confirming this. Um, So sure, we don't know who did it or why. It could be that they just wanted to make a point or that they get a kick out of photoshopping penises on things you know, an elevated form of of graffiti. And really, it doesn't matter. The point was that the picture generated a pretty big debate online. So some people were saying that these muses with penises photoshopped on them uh, was one form of LGBT plus representation, sort of a way of seeing yourself represented in classical art. And on the other hand, mostly in radical feminist circles, there was this kind of outrage And I quote that this was an artifact of the modern patriarchal industrial complex. So again, we come up to like debates about repurposing images. And I would really like to know what you guys think about this.
2: Um, So, yeah, I think this is a super interesting uh, debate that happened, you know, and um, this idea of representation versus appropriation is something that a lot of um, social movements have to actually deal with. Probably feminists themselves were kind of dealing with it in the 70s or the 80s when they were arguing things like, you know, I'm particularly reminded of Jirda Lerner, um, who was a feminist uh, scholar who has talked about the idea of creation of patriarchy and uh, she was one of the first people to talk about oh women have always been in history and women have made history Mm -hmm. and um so, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see how tables have turned around. Um, and while feminists could have easily argued that women have always existed in history, but they weren't included in the written text and we need to look at other sources. Now, when LGBTQ people are precisely arguing about looking at other sources and other forms of imaginations, radical feminists supposedly have a huge problem with it, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to contextualize um, these debates in a longer history, uh, that Whenever there is a you know there is there is a, this social kind of uh, cohesion or a kind of collacing around one particular identity, one wants to see you know their predecessors who are who are these people that we are inheriting from the past and you know arguing that we have always been there of course, the ethics of you know, photoshopping is is, is a complicated thing. Um, and something very similar happened to in India, actually. And uh, the debate was completely about something else there. So while here people are arguing whether you know, hermaphrodites ever existed or for that matter, whether they existed as queer people in the past, a similar argument happened in Indian context as well, uh, around the trans day of visibility. When images of hijras who are this, uh, uh, who are often referred to as eunuchs, who are referred to as a third gender in India, were shared by a lot of queer communities and LGBTQ groups saying that we have always been in history and we have always been visible. And um, people were kind of angry about it, you know, because on the one hand, while that allows you to argue that we have always been there, on the other hand, you might be doing a disservice to, you know, These people who might have not considered themselves to be queer, but one might ask, what is the role of images here? I think what's important for us to remember when we are talking about images, objects, and sculptures is that we need to particularly be cautious about what kind of conditions existed when these images were clicked. For example, images of third gender people were clicked in the colonial times, or what kind of conditions existed in ancient Greece or Rome when these kind of sculptures were made, uh, and whether those conditions were detrimental to those queer people. And when you use these images in the present, even with the nicest of intentions, you might be you know, inheriting not only the queer figures of the past, but the oppression that might have undertaken place in the past while these images were being produced. And uh, Christopher Penny talks about it beautifully when he talks about colonial photography, that when you try to take a picture from past and say, Oh, these are my predecessors, and uh, I would like to claim an inheritance from them, um, that we have always been in history, one must always be cautious about the violent conditions under which those photographs were clicked and whether we can look past those violent conditions and just say that, you know, queer people have always existed, women have always existed, even though they were treated like shit. Today, that will be different. Um, so, yeah, it really raises questions about history and politics and the present, but the more fundamental question here is that when you take something from the past, especially a photograph, what is the ethics of you using it in the present? Because again, it will have a life of its own. It will be shared millions of times on Twitter, Facebook, when people won't know about the violent context under which those pictures or sculptures were produced.
0: Right, for sure. I think this this links to a lot of of debates that have taken place in the LGBT plus um, community around all these third genders in different cultures. I knew about uh, the Navajo culture, which also has a third gender, and sort of argued that it wasn't very that they didn't consider themselves as a part of the LGBT community, yeah. and that they their their history shouldn't be appropriated. And again, I think it's interesting that that particular photo was a photoshopped uh, picture and not a picture of hermaphroditus which also yeah. is a sculpture that existed and that is around in the louvre as well so yeah, yeah that brings yeah. a number of points to the to the discussion
1: yeah I mean uh, to hear about the interdisciplinarity of the images itself like as you when I had earlier asked about what is images and what is not images I think the whole context or if you we to put that question into context, it's really understanding all the different uh, domains that actually revolve around images itself. It's not just one domain; it's really cross-cutting, and that's sort of the complexity of images itself. You it can be supportive. It can be, as you mentioned, history really dominates these um, these the existence of these. And uh, and I think when you speak about the LGBTQ community, it is also um, I think it's also in terms of the the times the, the, at that time the, the I personally don't know much about how uh, the different factors would come into play uh, around this community during let's say uh, the cold War time that also exists and then much after right now uh, 20 years later uh, how does how, how do these images actually play into the um, LGBTQ youth? And a lot of uh, people who do uh, raise um, awareness onto that this is very normal. And I think a lot of these domains are cross-cutting in understanding these images. Um, this is just what uh, my takeaway is. That yeah. to that question, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And if I just might, might actually like add a bit to it, I think one mm-hmm. of the things that we also have to fundamentally ask about these debates, uh, especially from those groups, and this mm-hmm. is not. Us being insensitive, but a very fundamental question isn't why is exactly, you know, your group is desiring visibility? Is visibility always good? Is visibility not also a moment when you become more vulnerable? Uh, I'm particularly reminded of uh, the new law that has passed by the government of India about. Uh, trans people and now apparently anyone who wants to be trans in the eyes of the state and here the word eyes is particularly important. The sen- there is an importance of visuality and visibility to the law like um, you know um, the, the, the government says that you have to actually produce the proof of a gender conf- uh, reconsignment surgery uh, mm-hmm. and that has to be brought in front of a medical professional and a judicial magistrate. So um, this entire discourse around trans visibility or visibility in general could often become another instrument of state surveillance. And That's something that a lot of groups and social movements have to remember that when we are asking to be visible, in whose eyes are we asking to be visible, right? In the eyes of the state so that it can now harass us further. We all know how often bureaucracy works against people who are marginalized, Mm -hmm. right? These certificates can very well be denied to people because this does not conform to the images that bureaucrats have in their mind about what a Mm transformation should look like, right? So, again, I think one very important idea for us to remember is that visibility equal to good, invisibility equal to bad is, is a kind of simplistic notion that doesn't work in every cultural and political context
0: Mm -hmm. that is that is an amazing remark i hadn't thought about that and that's really good um is visibility good in the end that that's really good and as you were mentioning you know the 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 feminist um movement has also dealt with this with this idea of you know whether they should be visibilized whether women in history should be visibilized and in what way because I'll, I'll change the subject a little bit to the other picture of Frida Kahlo here, yeah, which is an, more of an image and less of a picture since it's really a lot of different representations that we'll be addressing here. So as some of you may know, Frida Kahlo was a Mexican painter who was known for self-portraits and works inspired by nature and artifacts in Mexico. And she employed a sort of what I would call folk art style. Mm-hmm. And her work explored so many different um questions of post-colonialism, gender, class, race in Mexican society. And that's, that's a pretty long list of subjects, amongst others. And really none of them come through, I would say, in the image that we have of her today. I've seen so many reproductions of her self-portrait that have been used in everything from children's books to t-shirts to handbags to mugs. And even Theresa May wore a bracelet with her images um, <laughs> uh, for a speech. So as, as Lady Haha, ha, uh, a Twitter user, pointed out, can I just point out that Theresa May is wearing a bracelet of Frida Kahlo, a member of the Communist Party who literally dated Trotsky. So Frida has sort of become this poster child for the girl-powered marketing that is so prevalent nowadays, what, what some people would call pink washing. But um, again, we come up against this idea of, well, you need role models for girls. You need to visibilize women in history. But... Again, I think we come back to your question, Paris, is is visibility good and in what way?
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating example, you know, um, because I actually see a lot of images of Frida Kahlo being, you know, used... and often abused uh, in in various cultural contexts where Frida Kahlo might have never even gone to, to begin with. Now, of course, that's great that a figure is being globalized. And now we have role models other than, you know, American or European women. Um, but, you know, at the same time, one, one needs to remember very clearly that this is visibility. Great. But um, who is actually profiting for this, from this visibility? Is it uh, the I don't know descendants of Frida Kahlo, or uh, you know, poor Mexican women who are being who are being given the support, or it's the Communist Party, or the you know, whatever the ruins of its state r- remain in Mexico today? Are they the ones who are actually getting the royalties out of these images, or are these brands who are using these images as? surplus value, that now we are going to appropriate these figures for our own benefit. And yeah, it it raises difficult questions, though we must remember that when vulnerable marginalized groups are trying to claim visibility uh, using these icons, there's a different kind of politics to it than when corporates are doing it, right? And that mm-hmm. kind of forces us to remember that there's this idea that visibility is always good and is always bad is not a universal question with universal definitive answers. It happens in different kinds of what certain scholars have called scopic or visual regimes. That in a particular cultural or political context, visibility can mean several things. Invisibility can mean several things. It is our job as Visual anthropologists, development scholars, international relations experts to not just look at political speeches and, you know, words being strewn about, but also at images and how they are being used by certain kinds of political powers to put forth a particular, you know, um, worldview of the world, right? So I think, yeah, it's it's a difficult question. And the one answer that we have of it is that we don't have a simple answer to this. We can't go out and say, okay, this is bad. This is good. Um, it changes with time and cultural and political
1: contexts. Yeah, and uh, I mean, touching upon that example, I mean, just adding a couple more of what I have uh, read, I think with her rise in popularity, it's become quite difficult to entangle the public image that she's nurtured of herself and who she actually was. And so this is this uh, this rhetoric that we see of Frida as like Frida-mania that I actually... I. Uh, looked at online it is this cult-like status that she and others have nurtured. I mean, I I I feel like it, I think she's known and this I I don't really know if this is the image that the person herself has created or that the public has actually created of her. Um this is somewhere that I'm I think this is a very good example to take of how that's been Sort of repurposed, reused, and um, completely—I um, don't know it, it, it's separable, isn't it? It's not—it's—it's it's, uh, from from the artwork and her life, and the culture, and to the cultural persona that she became, and she kind of extended
0: the history of Mexico into her art, uh, which was very interesting to
1: see as well
0: yeah, and i I think would be remiss if we don't mention. I think the one image that shocked me of of when I saw a Frida Kahlo image in in at stores or whatever was sort of the whitewashing that went on with her mm-hmm. image. It was absolutely crazy that you would see this brown woman just being depicted as white, which was which is crazy because she's been so associated with Mexico. You know, you could expect that from a character in a novel or. Somebody whose image isn't that prevalent. But I think this, the whitewashing, the idea of like removing some of her symbols, I mean, removing her unibrow, <laughs> that, was, that was, why would you do that? Okay, so switching gears a little bit, I'd like to go from commercial depictions to a real internet sort of subject and talk about memes. So some of you have probably tangentially heard about Pepe the Frog as a meme. According to what is known as the eminent academic archive, Know Your Meme, Pepe the Frog is an anthropomorphic frog character from the comic series Boys Club by Matt Fury. On 4chan, various illustrations of the frog have been used as reaction faces, including Feels Good Man, Sad Frog, Angry Pepe, Smug Frog, and Well Memed. So really, this meme has been around since 2008, but it's in 2015 when things go sort of crazy. As with any internet culture, it's pretty hard to pinpoint the exact moment when something took place or when something took on a new meaning. But in 2015, the Southern Poverty Law Center added Pepe the Frog to the list of dog whistles and symbols for the alt-right. Now, obviously the media sort of jumped on this story and and designated it as a symbol of the alt-right. And then there was this huge argument from mostly 4chan users who... We're arguing that the media was being trolled and that any use of Pepe was sort of in an ironic way, which I don't really know how you use ironic Nazi memes, but you know, fine. The point is that the meme is now associated with the alt right. So whether usage was serious or not doesn't really matter. I mean, the artist even issued a statement refuting Pepe's association with the alt right, and he even launched a campaign called SavePepe, which you may have heard of. So really, this is kind of new territory, I feel, because the artist is involved this time. I mean, he's alive and well and and commenting on the appropriation of his art. But also, I would like to pose this question to you. Movements have repurposed symbols and imagery, you know, since the beginning of time. I mean, the alt-right, neo-Nazis, Nazis, that has always been the case. So do you have any comments on this? Yeah, I think uh, what
1: I, I mean the last 20 years internet culture has really boomed I mean not even the last 20 years in the last 5 years we see new new developments coming about and that also has expanded to symbols and images and uh, a lot of this uh, Representations. Now, obviously, I haven't really. Uh, I myself don't know the actual difference between all of these words as these keywords, which symbols, representations, and images. But I do know that Pepe the Frog. Um, this it has now become in Hong Kong. I was reading this one uh, article under wire that it has become a symbol of progressive resistance against an authoritarian state. So. It's how this one image of supposedly a very, a very. I mean, if you look at how Pepe the Frog is, you, it's a very calming and it's a very, um, the, the feel that as you, I mean, it is rightly said, the feel-good image, it's so different from what it has now being repurposed to. And we don't really know the, I mean, is it like, what is behind that rationale of taking something that's supposedly so different—a feel-good meme or a symbol—that has now completely repurposed to becoming something that is uh, advocating um, uh, rage, hatred, and uh, I mean, that symbol has become so saturated uh, that it's almost—it's a site that it's a sight of shock, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to the internet as a whole being like an accelerating mechanism for images to be repurposed because images come at you without any real context. So you don't, I mean, Pepe the Frog, at least I never read that uh, comic book. So the first time I encountered him was definitely on something like 9 And Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's always happened. I mean, there's been so many different symbols that, you know, start taking on a new meaning. And usually it's pushed by a party or like a central authority. What's interesting about this is that it's not one central authority. It's sort of many people deciding that something means a new thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And
2: I feel like, um, you know, it, it really speaks to uh, our idea, what I mentioned in the beginning, that when I was going through a couple of articles about Pepe the Frog, uh, a lot of them were talking about, oh, this has a life of its own. All of a sudden, it has a life of its own. But, you know, that really helps, like, kind of forces us to imagine all images as having a life of their own. And whether um, this entire um, argument about intellectual property or legalization of images, that this is the person who owns them, this is how they are going to be used, cannot really work with images because... It kind of ties us to what uh, WJT Michel was saying, you know, what I mentioned in the initial part that can you actually own humans? Can you actually, you know, brand them as somebody owned by something and they'll be only doing what, what you know, the owner of them demands them to do. Images are also somewhat like them. They have desires of their own. Um, and, you know, there are these counterpublics and publics around this meme now. And, One good thing that comes out of this is that now we can actually study you know, the circles in which this image is circulated. Um, in, in, in ethnographic work, we often talk about following the image or following the object. And a lot of scholars are doing digital ethnography these days. Um, the Institute for Internet Studies as Oxford is a good example of that. They do a lot of digital ethnographies. And now, you know, we have access to precisely these circles or these kind mm-hmm. of uh, deep dive, you know, there are these YouTube videos of YouTubers saying deep dive Google with me. Now we have this image in this we have a kind of anchor that we can use to study the different kinds of spaces in which this this meme is used to express you know hatred or etc. Now it's really sad as well, but like from a research standpoint, it's 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 quite interesting to see how this image is used amongst people, and it you know it it very well could be somebody acting like an investigative journalist because behind the screen you do not know whether the person person is fascist or not and they could actually see how um, this 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 meme has led to creation of these communities right so yeah I feel like it, it it's an interesting case study um, if somebody wants to do a paper on it or something.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of which, um, I think we've gotten to the end of our discussion and I really wanted to ask both of you whether you feel like you could do either a paper, as you mentioned, or a thesis, a dissertation, whatever, on these sorts of images and, like, if you had any research questions or any, you know, not me, I'm not talking about me, I have a subject. (laughs) Well, uh, I feel like a lot of people are already working
2: on these issues, right? Um, I think one of the things that we have to think of as the Graduate Institute community is what is worth studying, what is worth talking about. And we often think of concepts, we often talk of people, we often talk of ideas, of laws. But again, you know, it's tying to what we all discussed over the last one hour that all of these rely on, on a certain sense of visuality the law in the eyes of law for example or mm-hmm. the chance day of visibility we have always been in history there are these you know these words if you look at all of them are kind of hinting at a visible or a visual presence. And that's what allows us to study these things. A lot of uh, people are working on media. A lot of people are working on, you know, images and objects and how they unite cultures or even, you know, lead to cultural contestation. So I think you can definitely do a thesis and you must, most certainly should. The question then becomes is, um, how do you write about it, right? It's, it's complicated. Would you want to make a film about um, Frida Kahlo in Mexico today or would you want to write about it? whether our institute is you know accepting these alternative forms of media not only as research subjects or topics but also as medium right to you know, make a movie about something that you would like to study. Um, I think the institute needs to open up on that because that that can actually tell us that the question of development, the question of international relations, is not simply about people and ideas. It's 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 a lot about images. None of um, the organizations that surround us or our institute itself can work without images. So it's I think high time that we acknowledge that and start working on it in our MA or PhD thesis.
1: Mm. And um, uh, owing to that, I think uh, visual imagery and the research and discourse around that is so cross-cutting. It's so interdisciplinary that to actually begin, let's say now you are in this juncture, to start your research, to begin that research question. it's. Uh, I would like to give you a simple um a simple image, in that sense, if <laughs> to put it in that, uh, but it's like a tree. A tree can be something like to climb or a place of shade, right? Now, these, are, but a tree has branches. And the tree also has those roots deep within the soil. So the branches are these associations that this one image can branch out. To. Different domains that you'd like to look at, the different disciplines across cutting, history, anthropology, politics, economics. And I mean, it, it differs from all these different parties that image is a completely different connotation. Now, when you look again in deep, in depth, um, For example, the underground secret, these trees, these have these roots, right? So these are hidden or probably these private messages that can be evoked. So looking at both the in and the out, looking at uh, what is and what is not can be a very good uh, starter, Could be a very good juncture to begin uh, understanding. Because as Farah said, this is a very complex topic, but in its complexity lies its beauty. So I think it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful research, and I do agree that there is a, a very um, a, a need to begin uh, an, uh, an area of studies in this. Yes, within an institute and of course anywhere else as well, um, especially of higher research uh, depth and knowledge.
0: Well, that is a wonderful point to end on. Thank you so much for that metaphor about the tree and the roots. That was absolutely beautiful. And I'd like to thank you both for joining me and preparing so, so well with all the jargon and everything <laughs> for this uh, podcast about dumb internet culture and pop culture. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for listening. You know, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, listen to us mm-hmm. on Spotify, follow us on Instagram and everything, everything. Yeah, and Baris, uh, do you have anything to
1: mention about your work or anything that the listeners can... Uh, yes, uh, this
0: is the moment I that... for
1: self-plugs.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I mean, just send me a, a Facebook request. and I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It, I'm just, I, you know, but I would definitely like to like thank you uh, both and also the initiative because... You know it's it's um it's really required at this point of time uh you know when you guys covered for example coronavirus and those things that we were all worried about um it was absolutely needed but now also you realize even these you know conversations which might not seem as urgent can have so many people to just you know not feel lonely in a city like ours which is under the lockdown not for long hopefully so yeah i'm really thankful for for your initiative and um,
0: yeah that's that's kind of all i think yeah and please and then- add Paras on facebook
2: yes thank you so much <laughs> <laughs>